As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for joining us on the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. In this episode, we're going to be hearing something a little bit different from normal, In November 2022, Ulster University hosted the first International Academic C.S. Lewis Symposium to be held in Northern Ireland. The event, called Now We Have Faces, was hosted by the C.S. Lewis Group at Ulster University in coordination with English at Ulster, and they have very kindly let us broadcast the talks on this podcast. They have another symposium coming up soon, on the 17th of May, so do check out the link below for more details. The presentation you are about to hear is by Dr. Sarah Waters, a lecturer in English literature and an honorary junior research fellow at the University of Buckingham. The title of Sarah's talk was Facial Misrecognition, Out of the Silent Planet and the Boundaries of Face-to-Face. The pandemic has disrupted. This isn't a particularly radical thing to say. In fact, it's something people on all sides of the different intersecting scar lines which crisscross across the present world can, I think, agree on. It disrupted life as we thought we knew it. It challenged boundaries, either by some kind of seeming erasure or a very heavy introduction of them. Boundaries between countries were erected, walls impassable built with stacks of paperwork. The ability to move freely was curtailed. As I arrived, At the airport to fly over to the Wade for Lewis research, I was turned round. The border that night had been shut in 2020. And it was to remain so for two years. But boundaries between bodies were affected as well. I remember really vividly running along a cycle path which skirts around Oxford, out for the one allowed trip of the day. The ring road eerily deserted. And when occasional appearances of others on the wide path happened, we'd jump out into the road to give each other a wide berth. A mark of kindness, in fact but something which also smacked of separation, particularly given it's, um, the fact that it happened in silence with downcast eyes, the erasure of the hello or the morning, or even the sorry, the humanness of the interaction drained out of that very humanness. It wasn't immediately obvious why it felt so strange until I reflected on what normally might have happened and the effect of its pervading absence, exerting a kind of presence on all of us. Interactions were stripped of the coding of that ever questioned normal, the horribly prefixed new normal and the realization that normality is always in flux, no matter how bounded we try to make it or how bounded we thought it was. Social distancing or physical distancing by the misuse of social to mean physical, the resultant situation in the UK was one of both. 
There was and is disruption at this interactive level as well. When we interacted, we were distanced, increasingly veiled through screens, perpex and computer, visors, masks, gloved and hazmat suit clothes. Human interaction shifted radically as something invisible whose effects were horribly visible wove its way among our ranks. We saw only part of the face of another, the eyes, frequently fear-ridden. I kept forgetting that if you smiled at someone in the shop in your mask, they had no idea that you were smiling at them. I continued, partly forgettingly, partly defiantly, the kind of one interaction. I half wondered if there was some possibility there. And yet at the same time, the disconnect challenged its possibility. Speech was limited to necessities, to essential work or workers. But as part of this disruption of boundaries, borders, distancing, distances, it also disrupted our language. And it's that that I'm going to be focusing on um, in terms of setting up what I'm going to talk about with Out of the Silent Planet, because I want to bring the two things in dialogue with one another. And Out of the Silent Planet's discussions and grapplings with separation, distancing, identity, and of course, I mean, our protagonist is a philologist after all, language. It disrupted um, mostly through repurposing and disruptive redefinings. New phrases like elbow bump, you remember that one, emerged early on. COVID-19, of course, was new. Coronavirus was not. Was not. These are words that had previously existed in other guises, lockdown too. Um, there were co-inhabitations um, of words in the same context, um, words used now and then reused. Um, but the most interesting word grappling, repurposing, and visibly oscillating phrase to emerge from the pandemic is, I think, face-to-face. Face-to-face that is in opposition to online, to virtual, to digital, whatever you want to offer as that opposing term. Now, hang on a second. Are these opposing? It isn't as binary as pedagogical discussion suggests, or even as the hybrid blended whatever that sits in between the two indicates. We can, I think, at least in one sense, be face-to-face virtually, digitally, on some kind of online way. For one thing, Zoom and all virtual meeting platform softwares actually privilege faces above everything else. That's the thing you see in the screen. All too often, it's only the face of an individual we see. So in the most rudimentary sense, online is not actually in opposition with face-to-face, after all. But I know you'll say, that's not really what we mean when we say face-to-face. We mean in person. Another strange phrase made, really, what we really mean when we say face-to-face is, is something, it's something physical, it's something happening in the same space. In-person meetings stood on contrast to online meetings. But online is in-person, right? At least it's live, it's immediate, or at least it can be. And depending on the camera angle, we might see beyond the person as well. Um, now, I know, of course, that I'm being deliberately provocative here. Um, that neither of those are really what we mean when we say face-to-face or in-person. The preposition in both of those phrases is really crucial. It signifies our emphasis, something physical that the virtual can't quite fill, that being in the same space thing, that communality. Now, the best of Zoom calls get close, the best of the sort that leave you wishing you were all really sat together in a non-Zoom room talking and not just little bobbing boxes hanging out somewhere in the ether. That doesn't mean, however, I am not grateful for the time in the boxes in the virtual lounge, both then and now. Communities can be built and have been and continue to be. Wonderful ones. I'm not trying to discount or discredit these by any means. For example, there are people sitting in this room today who I first met at such a space like Inkling Folk Fellowship, for example, which if you don't know about it, you should ask me about it afterwards. Um, It's great. Um, But that's a community that I can't imagine my pandemic without. And it's a community whose members individually and collectively I'd never crossed paths with before the pandemic. 
So these virtual spaces can create opportunities, perhaps not immediately possible in physical meetings, the bringing together of people across time zones, continents, experiences. Conferences are great at doing that, so are churches. In theory, virtual spaces are also more inclusive and accessible for those with different disabilities, or at least they have the potential to be leveling spaces. But virtual allows a possibility of that crossing of oceans and time zones with a regularity otherwise existing only in the dreams of those who love travel. And yes, Zoom and its other video conferencing friends do allow for interaction and a deep sense of community. But there's also a very real rigidity of the boxes and that jarring happy sadness of Zoom. Happiness at connection, sadness at the reminder of those limitations of that connection. The closeness, it never quite fully contracts. The cues, it misses. And the face-to-faceness, which forces you to also see your own face, which is funny because in real life face-to-face interactions, you don't, right? You don't sit there looking at a mirror. Despite the repetition of the word, we only usually see one face, the face of the other or the others. In some ways then, this is more face-to-face than face-to-face in reality. It reminds us again that there is not quite human face-to-face interaction, even as it's also precisely that. It it demonstrates a kind of performativity of humanness, like the extra enthusiastic nodder at a conference, who, by the way, I really like, so if you want to do that, that's great, Um, who wants to somehow register their engagement. Zoom all the more demands this kind of performance. We're haunted by the leaning over image of ourselves, as well as our interlockers. We're looking bored. Are we smiling enough? Is our face too rigid? Questions which occur only occasionally in the physical sphere that faces with immediacy in the virtual. Face-to-face with a difference, a kind of fatigue, the sort of jaw ache you get when you're forced to smile too much in wedding photographs. It reminds us that this is humanness performed and trapped in a box, objected if not objectified. So then, in a world where interactions have shifted, where face-to-face means a presence we were all long starved of, even as we stared at disembodied faces substituting physical for virtual contact, where we question face-to-face, is it possible that kind of interaction? Is it possible with masks as mediator? Does this alter interactions irrevocably in a way that distanced doesn't quite fully capture? And when we grapple with what connection looks like, when face ID doesn't work, when screens go to sleep, when we're greeted with a forced view of our own faces, which somehow feel othered, split apart from ourselves, human and yet not quite, expectations of normal hide moments of possible recognition, carving out new communities where face-to-face and all its emergent hybridity challenge our thinking about sameness and difference, about what the norm is, about what normal is and othering. And that jarring reality of seeing ourselves othered as a mask of identity performed slips, we're linguistically and experientially primed then to reconsider Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, where Ransom, literally navigating another world, pushes at the boundaries of face-to-face interaction with those visible and invisible, and where those pandemically popularized terms of face and distance are used in that text to explore the boundaries of what it means to be human, of course, many years before um, they're popularized, and whether or not we need to define human in an oppositional way, or in fact, whether we have to see that as something that is beyond the species um, as well. Um, as well as equally COVID chiming themes of definitely catacophonic I shouldn't use that word, silence in euphonically cordiant universes. It's literal depiction of disconnect and initial isolation. 
and its consideration of the forging of new kinds of face-to-face -face interaction amongst distance and difference across world borders and boundaries, linguistic divides, challenging human superiority, um, and seeing that vulnerability and grappling with the limitations of a hybridized view of face-to-face, -face, which privileges Ransom's solicandrian norms, as we see Ransom's journey from a view which others um, to one which refutes that homogenization and glories in difference, sharing in that rather than seeking its erasure, stripped to that kind of hierarchical vision that we see with the linguistically corrupted divine, um, privileges face at rather than face to interaction, moving from a position of looking at to looking with, like Lewis talks about looking along the beam of light. So before I hone in on some directly connected examples, I'm just going to give you two examples of the first times that face is used in Out of the Silent Planet. They're good indicators, I think, of the kind of engagements with face-to-faceness and that kind of Covidian language that we find there. The first occurs when Ransom, on the hunt for Harry, sits on the threshold of the rise, a name which, of course, nods to the forthcoming journey and also to the falls, which mark the end of the journey, as well as a supplation um, of godlike power like the deliberately corrupting divine through the removal of sun and its oral pun sun, emphasized um, by Ransom's also contrasting failure to rise and ring for the third time. Now, of course, doorsteps as meeting places took on an additional meaning in the context of lockdowns. But more than this, we see the isolation and inherent strangeness, the lulling, the not quite silent, suddenly disrupted. The night was warm and starlit. The sweat began to dry on his face and a faint chilliness crept over his shoulders. The faintness of the chill again foreshadows that frightful way that he's going to be treated and the creeping unease he feels on this otherwise warm night. Of course, to stand on the doorstep or a little back from the step in a lockdown, like the emphasis on distance as well as closeness of Zoom, reminded us what was missing, even as it offered the chance to interact, but not really, face-to-face -face but masked or distanced or both, in the chilliness remembering afresh why both had to wait on the threshold, awaiting a world where we could once again encounter each other in a deeper face-to-face -face fashion. Eventually, Ransom is able to step in and take the place of Harry, to pay the price, as it were. His liminality is later emphasized when he refers to himself as almost non an almost non-existent creature. Liminal in his inherent creatureliness, dehumanized or dehumanizing himself, He's stuck between human and other. He distances himself from Western, but also from the Western world that he inhabits. This self-othering sets up the later response that he gives um, to Malakandra and its inhabitants, but also in theory places his view in opposition to the mission of the divine, that of the mark of progress and the good of humanity and all that, which also has an industrial side. The good for a specific self, a selfish self, not the plurality humanity implies. I say in theory, because as well, we would do well to see Ransom is also susceptible to imperialistic visions. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. The second reference to face comes in a line which sounds like it comes out of Till We Have Faces. The lie was barefaced. Now, Lewis plays with barefacedness, veiling and unveiling a lot in that text, but... This text, to some extent, explores those ideas of deception, appearance and reality, a lie so starkly put that lying kind of oozes out of it. The extent to which one's true self or a performance of the self is revealed in the barefaced lie, in the barefaced face-to-face -face interactions. It's bluntly, defiantly barefaced. The notion that Western will be glad to see ransom is undercut by Western's demand, which only uses pronouns and appears in its imperative to treat him as no higher than a small dog. 
Later, we see that face-to-face -face can be deeply dangerous in this text as well, as eerie eye contact and a drink which paralyzes sense by sense combine. Divine becomes inaudible, controlling Ransom through his gaze with a new expression on his face. Ransom is pulled into the unconscious realm. Now, Ransom initially views the world um, through imperialistic lenses. He, this is Malacandra. He sees this even as he begins to tr transition out of it, when he looks below at the earth as he travels through the heavens, noting that it was all there, by which, of course, he means it all was familiar, normal, humanity, earthly things. Here, he says, it was all there in that little disc, London, Athens, Jerusalem, Shakespeare. There everyone had lived and everything had happened. Everything, that is, that he had experienced up until that point. Ancient civilizations, nods to centers where ideas are exported around the world. And England, which also gets its own preceding sentence, also gets two out of the list of four, which he captures the whole world. London, the imperialistic capital of the world, and Shakespeare, widely exported as part of the colonialization civilizing process, and used for imperialistic arguments and means as well. As Ransom views the world, we see his shifting thinking, as distance expands between him and the world he once knew, he selects signifiers for it. Locational, primarily, bastions of civ uh, classical civilization, religion, Christianity, Islam, or Badolatry, an imperial empire, each connected in some way to his everyone and his everything. It's all he has known. Our world, which he initially mistakes for another world, he thinks it's Mars, which is meant to be ironic, of course, um, and then he sees as one who's come from within but is now without. He reduces it in some ways to a kind of brief litany of highlighted sites, a specific individual, and then more sloppily with capsule generics, which ironically point to the fact that these everyones and everythings are insufficient. He's now outside of its domain, and swiftly he's going to encounter other ones and other things and learn that they're not things but rational beings, as we see in gradual realization of the Horus's desire to help when we see the shift from an imperial desire for others to do his bidding, where he says, come back, he shouted in English. The thing turned, spread out its arms, and spoke again in its unintelligible language. Then it resumed its progress. We see there the initial imperative language spoken critically as the narrator notes in English, a language which indicates disjunction and where differences are emphasized. This is a thing with object pronouns whose language is unintelligible to him and therefore must be unintelligible. Now, of course, this is a little unfair in some ways. This is, after all, Ransom's first encounter with Haras, and he is linguistically processing this, yes, in English. And the way he seems to make sense of this world is, in fact, in terms which hybridize and anthropomorphize, which is to say, humanize the Haras. We see this emerging in the parenthetical musings of Ransom, which punctuate his observations. He observes the Haras's hand. He says he was already thinking of its webbed uh, forepaw as a hand. We see that his tendency to use human features as the benchmark amongst which others must be measured. Not quite in the exploitative vein that we find with Western and Divine's desire for exportation and for, desire, uh, for destruction and assertion of power. His colonial tendencies are a bit more subtle. He refigures initially Malachandrians in human terms, but we do well to remember that he's presenting us a vision of this world to an uninitiated audience which is to say those of us who are familiar with Solacandrian practices connected with man were less Malacandrian initiated. We know a hand better than a webbed forepaw. We know its function and its cultural usages, but in his apparent conflation of the non-human with the human for ease and accessibility, Lewis is making a further point. This kind of objectification and reductive rendering of others in humanoid terms is limited 
and worse, it removes their agency. As Ransom parenthetically wonders about the appearance of some gestures to share with human practices, he's already rethinking his own tendency to think in human terms, to say that this equals that, even as the dictionary he speaks um, of will to some extent do that. He shifts his thinking to a more nuanced way of describing and swiftly thereafter begins to integrate the Malacandrian language. Creatures move from creatures to named species, individuals within a species, so the not only colonial identified, but the other known face-to-face -face encounters shift from observer to observee, to a process of sharing, a process which challenges the hierarchy inbuilt in that imperialistic vision. We see this in the first linguistic encounter, perhaps most powerfully, as Ransom recalls this rewriting of a colonial vision, as linguistic distance is contracted, which isn't to say linguistic or otherwise agency is removed, but rather it's wondered at not as an object, but as a means to engage and to contract social and ultimately physical distance between man and Hross, or rather between Ransom and this particular Hross, whose name he later learns. Hross, it said, Hross, and, fla and flapped itself. Hross, repeated Ransom, and pointed at it, then man, and struck his own chest. Ma, ma, man, initiated the Hross. There are still objectifyingly pronouns present, but Ransom now is othering himself as well, which is to say they're both reducing themselves to monosyllabic species signifiers, cross and man, respectively. We see the blend between body language and articulated language, the flapping, the chest striking. This is a gesticulatory exchange, an exchange where pointing, where identifying through body language and through gesticulation, combine with linguistics in order to formulate both language and dialogue. It is, of course, broken language at this stage, the silent H and the brevity um, of man rendering all single-syllable exchanges in that shared um, imitative exchange. There's a willingness, though, still to openness, to exchange beyond facial difference and bordered divides. But it also signifies the dynamism of language as something which is performed as well. It includes those gesticulations, which zoom boxes, unless you increase the height of your hands, rarely capture. Body language needs almost to be felt and experienced in the same physical space. It allows for the duality of face-to-face -face then. One which on the one hand can contract that distance and can happen in safe, distant spaces, but is so much more when lived, embodied and experienced. After all, we can't reach through the screen and touch the chest of the other, nor I suspect replicate the flapping another is enacting in a zoom box to our left. Something is lost in the exchange of language with limits. In face-to-face -face exchange, which is distanced and out of the silent planet, shows us at least one model of defining by difference and refusing to contract it and its implications. The limitations of a model which tries to redefine the other in norm, in this case, man's terms. And also what face-to-face -face interaction might look like in a shared space with different species in a world wholly distant from ours whose silent demeanor seeks to hierarchically define others as well, to look uh, at rather than look with, that voyeurism, staring at the face in the box, talking at the face, not having face-to-face -face interactive exchange. This stripping of linguistic exchange to the purely verbal and perhaps facial expressions if people have their cameras on, or at least tonal expressions if they don't, is, is what we've been longing for, right? To return to a world longing as we remained in a distanced, safely wrapped up state waiting until we had faces again. Lewis, of course, would say that this is also a vision not just of our world and lives as they could be, as they once were, though perhaps now are even more so as we make up for what was lost and as we combine both kinds of face-to-faceness, inhabiting worlds virtually and physically, 
or rather the virtual spaces physically, and the physical spaces all the more kinesthetically, feelingly. But also a world beyond this, a world where we will have faces again, faces made new, transformed by the face we cannot yet gaze upon, except beyond the same screen of linguistic guise, scripture, liturgy, icons, burning bushes, seeking once more to contract the distance. He is, that is. Until it is, we can see each other in his presence face to face. Just as Lewis talks of the damage of shutting one's heart in a box in The Four Loves, so too we and our hearts are damaged in different ways as we trapped, were trapped in boxes, starved of some kind of exchange and yet finding spaces of community where the expanse of language could somehow be captured, or at least as far as Zoom allowed us to remind us that distances could be contracted, worlds and visions expanded, others deeply known and unothered by us, the otherers. Face-to-face -face in a distance world is still face-to-face, -face. it's just face-to-face -face with a difference. We see the exploration of the wonder of dis difference as well as distance as it begins to be lessened. We move from giving um, in as the silent planet cross human parts and characteristics to elevating through simile the cross and human um, encounter to something that we find later in Perilandra. Though, of course, by world, ransom now means Earth, um, it says... He was, it was like a courtship, like the meeting of the first man and the first woman in the world. It was like something beyond that. So natural is the contact of sexes, so limited the strangeness, so shallow the reticence, so mild the repugnance to be overcome, compared with the first tingling intercourse of two different but rational species. We see that emphasis on difference, distance, and difference and disjunction, which must be overcome for relationality to be established far beyond that experience, even at the highest point of difference between a species. And the description of that coming together suggests, I think, a kind of physicality, or at least a shared space. The electric brush indicated by tingling intercourse, capturing something like that first unexpected touch of those who have not yet realized that they might be on a journey towards love. The tingle, which is a physical, tangible thing, which is also deeply liminal and fleeting, linguistically indicated and bodily indicated by that shudder, whether from repugnance or joy, in a blend of both as a coming together between and across differences takes place. Different, but rational. But perhaps the best example of Lewis's engagement with face-to-face -face and out of the silent planet comes a little bit before this moment, where Ransom discovers the cross rationality. Um, I'm just going to read you a very brief section of this. Um, so, it, it, um, so Lewis writes, The creature was talking. It had language. If you're not yourself a philologist, I am afraid you must take on trust the prodigious emotional consequences of this realization in Ransom's mind. So Ransom realizes that this is a speaking, talking creature. And we see as he develops that point, the distanced and exploitative potential of Ransom's character. He thought, thinks about, oh, well, I can make this dictionary. Wouldn't that be great? And I might discover the, the root of, of all these different languages. His dictionary title is layered with macabre humor since for all we know, Ransom may be about to die. And yet he's wondering at what he can take from this and how it might further his career. And yet, what does he do? He locks eyes with Hross. Um, Sir Lewis continues. Um, the huge bullet head swung round and lustrous amber eyes fixed him. There was no wind on the lake or in the wood. Minute after minute, in utter silence, the representatives of two so far divided species stared into, stared each into the other's face. And so he stares, he has a face-to-face -face interaction. And in that interaction, he realizes something of the rationality of the cross, not just because it doesn't kill him, but in that pregnant silent exchange, they look at one another staring into the face, distanced, face-to-face -face without substantial relationality, 
but deeply physical face-to-faceness also. So in these brief vignettes, um, and I think there's much more to be explored here, which I simply didn't have time to do in this paper, I think we've seen in Out of the Silent Planet and in the rhetoric, as well as our own experience um, of the pandemic, that face-to-face both inherently depends on an embodied, far beyond that repeated face, experiential interaction, and yet at the same time, face-to-face is a psychological shift of a willingness to look differently, to look with and to look at alongside rather than to look at and objectify or other indifference. Inherently, face-to-face then depends on dialoguing. And this can happen in person, which is to say in body, or in face, which is to say in boxed, in virtual face. These are both face-to-face of different kinds. Communities are built and established in both. And when the two are brought tinglingly together, that intercourse, that contraction of distance and difference, and that joyous bringing together of distinctive beings into the faces, and between the faces and bodies and identities fully found and felt is realized in both kinds of people having faces together again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. We were hearing there from Dr. Sarah Waters, and she gave that presentation at a C.S. Lewis symposium called Now We Have Faces. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.